3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, It's the 24th of August uh, at 7am. You're joined here by me, Genevieve, Evie, Fung, Carnegie... We've got a bit of a different system going this morning. Oh, sorry, I should probably say good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, so we're broadcasting to you all from two studios this morning, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's um, really revolutionised the way I look at this space now. <laughs> Literally, uh, Carnegie and Funga on the other side of um, a window. <laughs> I feel like we're in, like, two sections of a spaceship or you know it just feels very that's a great way of looking at it yeah an exciting way of looking at it (laughs) yeah it's so it's quite bizarre (laughs) just some inside baseball for our listeners of just like seeing what they're trying to imagine what we look like trying to recording on like two sides of a wall (laughs) um how has everyone been considering uh, extended lockdowns, but beautiful weather, might I just say. Yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? It's on the one hand, I can't concentrate on anything and my brain feels foggy. And then on the other hand, you've got this amazing sunshine. Not yesterday, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, not yesterday. <laughs> but like the weekend, night. yeah, it was yeah, beautiful. The yeah, it's kind of like... Um, the universe saying, oh, here you go. Like, just enjoy that and, you know, <laughs> you'll be right for another week. <laughs> um, just a little bit of serotonin. Yeah, definitely. It was a beautiful sight, though, um, on, like, Sunday and Saturday. Like, the like the parks just become, like, literal hubs of, I love like, it. people everywhere and, like, oh, it's so... Yeah, it's so nice. Yeah, people trying to catch up and, you know, mm. do something, like, get get in touch with their community as well mm. in, a, in a safe way as well. Like, you know, when I went down to Mary Creek this weekend for, like, trying to go for a walk and a run and stuff, and it's just so nice to see people, you know, catching up with their neighbours and just, but, like, still doing everything they can to make sure everyone's safe. So it's yeah, great. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, up on the show uh, this week, um, just after we're going to go through the news headlines and then Fong has um, an interview. Yeah. So last week, um, I'm sure you all remember, I spoke to Dr. Jihen Kebsi from Macquarie University. She wrote an article for Arena Online about the French government's weaponization of the term Islamo-leftism. And uh, they're uh, they're accusing academics and universities of indoctrinating their students, teaching them anti-French things like, you know, exploring gender and racism and colonialism. Well, I caught up with her again and some of her undergraduate students because they co-organised a conference called Decolonising Identity, which is based on one of the subjects 
that Dr. Jihan Kepsi uh, teaches. We talked about, you know, the media's stereotypical portrayal of certain groups and certain communities and talked about ways in which we could share our knowledge with others and use that as a form of uh, activism or action. So, yeah, that's coming up yeah, that around sounds, 7.30. That sounds really great, actually. I'm really excited to hear that one. Um, I am going to play an interview. Unfortunately, I was planning to interview Professor Jackie True, who was who's the Professor of International Relations and Director of Monash University's Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, um, about, uh, I guess, what's going on in Afghanistan, specifically what the impact is going to be on women and children since the Taliban um, has just taken over. Um, she is a very busy woman at the moment, trying to organise evacuations and visas for um, Afghans uh, still stuck in Afghanistan. Um, so I'm going to play an interview that she did um, about exactly what uh, the impact is going to be on women, um, exactly what the incentive of the Taliban might be, and most importantly, I think, what we can do from uh, here in Australia. So. And later on this morning, I'm going to be speaking to Cam Smith, who is a co-host of Yena Passeran with Andy Fleming right here on 3CR. Uh, we're going to have a chat about some of the re- revelations over the last week or so of uh, some neo-Nazis in our midst in Melbourne. Um, not just, you know, the, the known factors, but also um, some undercover operatives have gone in uh, through uh, a Fairfax investigation and have discovered a lot more people in the community who have uh, fascist beliefs um, and who have been sort of like, you know, intent on creating violence in our communities as well. And we're just going to have a chat about, you know, those revelations and what we can do to sort of um, stamp out um, the appearances of fascism in our communities as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go to a quick announcement and we'll be back with the news headlines. Keep it locked to 3CR. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast here on 3CR. We're going to jump into some news headlines for the 24th of August. Um, First up, reports came uh, yesterday that a Tamil refugee has died after self-immolating. 
the death through self-immolation of a Tamil asylum seeker in Sunshine in Melbourne's western suburbs is further evidence that the Australian government's refugee policies are killing people. And um, I'm just getting this information off the Tamil Refugee Council just on their Facebook page. Um, so Kaneshwaran uh, Krishna Pillai was just 38 years old. He worked as a cleaner and was supporting his three children and wife, but the psychological suffering he has been put through by the Australian government's cruel, inhumane policies pushed him to the point where he believed he no longer had anything to live for, uh, said Renuga Inpakamua, the spokesperson for the Tamil Refugee Council. Um, and uh, they also said, we have seen many refugees take their lives by suicide in Australian detention centres and in the community. Now we have the death of a family man who, like so many refugees on bringing visas, woke up every morning, sorry, on bridging visas, woke up every morning wondering if he would be returned to the persecution from which he fled. It's just horrific. He came to Australia by boat from India in April 2013 and has been in detention ever since. He fled Sri Lanka as a young child after his family came under threat from the military and for him to be in isolation and, you know, imprisoned for this long, it's no wonder, like, you know, that you you live there with no hope or no sort of sense of the future. Yeah, definitely. And, like, if we've had any sort of taste, not to any sort of degree, that refugees go through here in Australia, but, like, the uncertainty, the uncertainty of when it's going to end, the uncertainty of when you're going to be able to actually have that feeling of security in a place um, like Australia, it would, yeah, it's devastating. Yeah, it's an indictment on Australia's policies continuing to kill people. Um, one thing we will put up on um, both our show notes and on our Twitter page is that a fundraiser has been set up on behalf of the family and has been uh, approved by the Tamil Refugee Council. Um, so please share that widely and please donate as well. And also if, any, um, if that story has brought up anything for you and you need some support you can call lifeline on 131114 because it is yeah really full on and everyone needs to be looking after themselves at the moment yeah for sure um all right crossing to an update on afghanistan um dozens of afghan nationals who worked with australia in afghanistan but have missed out on a visa for at-risk employees, have been told that they will have priority in the broader pool of 3,000 humanitarian places. The move raises the prospect that some of the humanitarian places announced by the Australian government after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban last week could be taken by former interpreters and security guards blocked for the scheme for former employees. Uh, But former workers fear retribution from the Taliban for assisting Western forces. And, I mean, as everyone has seen, there's been chaotic and uh, dangerous scenes on the road to Kabul airport from where Australia and its allies are operating evacuation flights. Uh, But some workers have been deemed ineligible for the Australian government's specific scheme, including technicalities such as being a contractor rather than a direct employee or not applying at the time in time. I mean, this this is really irritating for me um, and I think for everyone reading these sorts of stories in terms of um, such the process that has to be set up to get these visas and then just rejecting people based on not getting them in in time, um, not having the correct um, eligibility requirements. I mean, like, 
it was something like a handful was rescued when we sent in um, a thousand troops uh, in a few days ago. Um, yeah, has anyone else been following this at all? I mean, I just think that Australia's um, visa policies for the more privileged are so strict and so the you know the way in which um there's like a sort of hierarchy of who can come and who can can't and it the process can be dehumanizing even at the best of times um and then for it to this experience to be what afghani refugees are going through when we're all watching what's happening on tv is it's truly um it's something to be said about australia yeah definitely and um you know i've seen scenes of um, a lot of Afghans, you know, writing on pieces of paper and because a lot of the NATO troops are not picking up the pieces of paper, they're leaving them by the gates of a lot of the embassies and um, a lot of the planes that are taking off at the airport. And so there's just piles of paper, like building up of applications um, wanting to get out of Afghanistan. Um, but we will be talking about this a little bit, well, a little bit later. I'll be sharing with you an interview um, and, you know, Jackie True really speaks to the fact that, you know, prioritise the vulnerable, prioritise um, the people that need help the most and that, yeah, should be at the forefront of the federal government's mind. But, I mean, yeah. Um, just going to local news now, there's been a COVID outbreak in the um, Indigenous community of Wilcania in New South Wales. As of last night, the town recorded 39 cases in a community of just 750 people. So it's getting uh, quite bad over there. One of the issues is overcrowding in, in housing and just the lack of support that this community is receiving to fight this virus. And it didn't help that um, the New South Wales Health Minister blamed attendance at a funeral for the town's outbreak, which actually occurred before the restrictions were um, implemented. So that hasn't helped at all, um, you know, supporting this small community. If if you'd like to help out, there's a fundraiser um, being organised to raise money for fresh fruit and vegetables and food supplies to send to families over there, and we can pop that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's it's absolutely devastating to see that um, it's reached Lacanya. It shouldn't have. We should have known better than to let it get there. Um, and I think we have one more headline, which is my favorite headline of the last few days, which is that in Argentina, hordes of capybaras have actually taken up residence at a gated community. Um, and <laughs> they're being referred to as class warriors because um, the it's Argentina's most well-known gated community, which environmentalists are often question the actual existence of because it's built on the wetlands of Paraná, um, the second most important river in South America after the Amazon. Um, and now it's like nature is fighting back against what the Guardian is reporting as its well-heeled residents um, with a capybara invasion. And they're just in there destroying these manicured lawns, biting their dogs, causing traffic accidents. Wow. Yeah. That's 
amazing. Yeah. Um, and just for anyone that might not know what a capybara is, think of like <laughs> a hamster but giant. Yeah, a giant <laughs> hamster or like a wombat with extended legs. Yeah, I, I would say like a wombat crossed with a guinea pig or a hamster. Yeah. And then you know, in terms of size, times a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of have this like serene look on their face yeah. all the time. And like with this article on The Guardian, there's a picture of a capybara looking just so satisfied. <laughs> yeah. And just really indifferent to humans and yeah, what they, they hold precious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'd be pretty satisfied too if I broke into a gated community and was just chilling out by the pool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so nonchalant. Yeah. Yeah, um, so if you're looking for a good news story this week to break up, you know, reports of COVID chaos, outbreaks yeah. and uh, climate catastrophes, then please search up capybaras yeah, just go and google images honestly <laughs> right now there's all these capybaras with like monkey like monkeys riding them and like yeah just such a non-fussed expression they should be the mascot of melbourne lockdown. <laughs> i think like my favorite capybara pictures is like i don't know i can't remember where it would have been taken but like just capybaras chilling with like alligators and like birds and stuff like that and just just sitting by the riverbank just peaceful as can be and it's just like yeah I like that (laughs) um all right well we're gonna cross to a quick announcement and then we'll be back with a track keep it locked to 3CR Luciano and Georgia Keats supported by the Australian Queer Archive present Queer Ways retracing Melbourne's queer footprint Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter.
You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, It's 7.19am and we're going to just play you a song uh, by Lady Donnelly, who um, is a Nigerian uh, musician. um, And, I mean, her music kind of um, involves a lot of African history and there's a lot of musical um, inspiration from African music and I mean, I just discovered her this week and um, I'm obsessed with this song at the moment and it's called Classic.
just playing over the top there is Lady Donnelly with Classic. Um, we're going to go to an interview now that Fong um, did just this week. Yeah, so last week, like I said earlier, we heard an interview with Dr. Jihen Kebsi from Macquarie University about the French government's weaponization of the term Islamo-leftism used to accuse academics of indoctrinating, their words, indoctrinating their students by discussing topics like racism, colonialism and Islamophobia in France. Over the weekend, I caught up with Dr. Kebsi again to ask her about the upcoming conference that she has organised with some of her gender studies undergraduate students based on Dr. Kebsi's unit called Decolonising Identity. In this short roundtable discussion, students talked about their personal reflections from the unit where they had to challenge negative stereotypes of certain marginalised communities uh, being portrayed in the mainstream media. The students also shared their ideas on how we can share what we've learned from educational spaces with our own communities, as well as turning theory into tangible community action. So here is Dr. Jihan Kebsi and her students, Hannah, Talia, Jade, Prashada, Alana and Sophie. And I will just add that this discussion does talk about um, stereotypes. So, yeah, just a warning. Welcome back, Dr. Kebsi. Could you please tell us about the conference that is based on your gender studies unit at Macquarie University? Um, hi again, thank you for having us on. So my, my wonderful super intelligent students and I have co-organized an international online conference. The main theme of our conference is decolonizing identity. Our conference is based on my gender studies course, which has the same name, decolonizing identity. Uh, so the midterm assignment in this course is a self-reflection, and this conference presents a selection of personal reflections written by the students who took my course in semester one. So when I teach this course, I set a reflective writing ass assessment in order to encourage students to think um, about and question um, misrepresentations of various marginalized minority groups. So these include immigrants, refugees, Arab women, Muslim Australians, as well as the feminists, artists and academics who live in the global south. So in this assessment tasks, students need to reflect on their perceptions of topics like the veil, curly hair and anti-immigrant sentiment before and after taking the course. So in this assignment, students are asked to explore personal experiences, feelings and events related to these marginalized groups. And they also need to link them to the theories and concepts learned through the course material. So honestly, I was impressed by the quality of the self-reflections that were written by many students in, 20, in both 2020 and 2021. So these personal reflections showed the transformative impact of the lectures, readings, and weekly class and online discussions on the students. For this reason, I have decided to organize this conference, which will present a selection of personal reflections by the students who took my gender studies course over the last two years. And again, I would like to highlight that I am co-organizing this event with my 
uh, hardworking students who have done a lot of excellent um, work and who have been so dedicated to making this event succeed. And it will be held next Saturday uh, on August 28th on Zoom, of course. What have you learned about the media stereotyping of certain communities? And we'll start with you, Hannah. Um, so I found that media's depiction of ethnic, cultural and religious identities go beyond just the creation of punchy, sensationalised headlines or interesting characters. The stereotyping of certain communities in news media and film media support society's untrue and often hostile attitudes towards marginalised communities and have a damaging effect on us as marginalised individuals, our self-esteem and sense of acceptance in the community. Um, this pattern doesn't exist in a vacuum. It mirrors a colonial pattern where the other is painted in a bad light, whether as immoral, lazy villains, to justify the erasure of the other's voice in, fa in favour of the dominance, dominant group's depiction of them. Suddenly, um, normal becomes Western and the other becomes exotically different. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for that. And we'll now go to you, Talia. Um, so I just want to start off by saying that I am a Jewish woman of colour, so I'm going to touch a little bit on my own community. Um, so what I've learned is that mainstream media paints a pretty black and white picture of what different communities look like, and it doesn't always deal with the nuances of ethnic and religious diversity. So often entire communities are labelled as representing one identity, um, during the course, Jihan spoke about um, using the term the so-called Oriental woman or the Arab feminist, creating one identity for those entire groups. Um, and just two small examples. Um, in the media, Muslims are portrayed as terrorists who all live in the western suburbs of Sydney, um, and Jews are portrayed as rich, white and privileged who all live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Um, and those stereotypes are obviously not true. Thank you for your reflection, Talia. Now over to you, Jade. Um, so I think the biggest thing about entering this question about stereotypes, especially like focusing on this unit, is like you always have your own perceptions for what stereotypes are. Like I'm a queer woman. It's so easy for me to watch a piece of media, see news pieces and pick out the stereotypes that hurt me because I'm so personally affected by it. But like I'm white, so stereotyping so inherent in our society that like our white privilege could be followed back to the fact that like we don't have harmful stereotypes. We don't have to live a life considering how we portray ourselves and how our portrayal is representing an entire community of people it gets to a point where people of marginalized groups, especially like how we talked about in this unit, like it's like they have to fight to have attention drawn to how these stereotypes perpetrate like hate crime and violence against them. And privileged individuals can brush them off as like over-exaggeration or PC culture because they don't want to face the fact that everyone carries an inherent bias that's been, you know, formulated and encouraged by, you know, stereotypical media. And we'll now hear from you, Prashana. So I would say just about this unit generally is I definitely had the experience of feeling really validated as a South Asian woman of colour. Um, I think we're so used to the media really centering white voices. And as everyone's kind of said, like, 
white voices are getting nuance and depth and characterization. And when you see media representations of people of colour, like it's very, we're put as the inferior, less civilised, needing saving um, and digging further like into the beauty standard and how that Eurocentric beauty standard is the one that we see glorified, which ultimately harms many people of colour, even within their communities where we see like colorism occurring, where people of color who are lighter are ultimately in their own communities given favorite favoritism or favoritized within their communities itself. So I think what I've learned is just how deep those colonial roots go into mm. not even just in a wider scale, but when you step into people of color's communities um, and how even just that being closer, pro white proximity, honestly, mm. is glorified. Thanks, Prashana. Up next is Alana. When you reflect on the media and that sort of stuff, you always realise that there's an agenda coming uh, coming through. The only like the only national paper, newspaper in Australia is the Australian, which is owned by um, the Murdochs and is quite a conservative paper. So, I think something exciting about social media is that we get so many people. Um, speaking about their experiences that it almost becomes a sort of data set that we can understand and realize um, different experiences that might exist outside of stereotypes mm -hmm. but what I'm seeing now or like what we might see is that like what goes what becomes trending in that on social media is typically tragedies and it's not until things get quite extreme or um, really just uh, horrific that it becomes trending on social media and then everyone likes to share posts and start listening to different people's voices, which I think in turn creates a new stereotype about what goes on in these countries. So if that's the only information that we're getting because the West controls, largely controls the narrative, and if we're only getting these stories when it comes to the point of tragedy or extreme, yeah, these extreme situations, it's going to generate a new stereotype, a new understanding of these groups of oppressed people who, or just people who don't often get their voices heard in a large space. And lastly, we're going to hear from Sophie. So firstly, I'd just like to acknowledge I'm speaking to you from the land of the Gringai people of the Eora Nation. And I'd also just like like to make it very clear that I am a white woman and um, so coming into the decolonizing identity course um, was very very interesting for me but I just need to make it clear that I don't intend to speak on behalf of Arabic men or Muslim men or Arab men um, so in terms of my reflection I was looking at particularly um, so-called oriental masculinities and the representations of Arab men in the media and so in the course we looked at Edward Said the, the theorist um, which was super interesting but in particular the the othering that went on and the relationship of um, knowledge and power creating a dominant European ideology in which we have the the so-called Orient, or we have the so-called other in relation to the so-called norm or the so-called West, which I think some of my peers have already touched on. And, you know, Jihan really helped us unpack um, some of the depictions of, of so-called Oriental men, but to then understand the, the context of colonisation and then how deeply embedded 
those messages and those representations are, particularly within the Australian media, particularly through the American lens that we do get, was a really valuable experience for me. Um, and I certainly learned a lot through that. And it has particularly helped me try and decolonize my own understandings. And we'll get into this question later, but my, my peers and my family's understandings as well. How can we share this knowledge that we've acquired through courses that we study at university and through papers that we read with our own communities and transform what we've learned into action. Hannah, is there anything that you would like to say in response to this? There is a continuing movement that already creates a big difference that is potentially uni-based or theory-based and empowers people from diverse communities to um, take back the West's assumed right to narrate stereotype and profit from stories. Um, for example, in my East Asian community, fresh off the boat and family law, they really stood out to me when I was growing up. I can't even begin to explain how much it meant to watch genuinely interesting queer and complex East Asians while sitting on the ground with my parents in the comfort of the living room. Um, and it meant a lot for me and it definitely meant a lot for my parents to see themselves finally represented in a true way in TV. I think that's a really simple and easy way to create a sense of belonging and to centre our voices again. Prashana, over to you. So I think having valuable representation of different communities and actually providing them with depth and different characterization and not letting them just fall into stereotypes, such as, again, speaking from my own experience, as often the screen representation of South Asians is like the smelly, socially awkward, nerdy ones. Like seeing just a plethora of representation is so important in sharing knowledge and educating. But I do think at the core of it, education is so important and like unlearning um, stereotypes that we have. Thank you, Prashana. Jade, is there anything that you wanted to say in yeah response to this question about turning what we've learned in a theoretical sense into tangible action? Yeah, of course. Like I think everyone's had this viewpoint of like stereotypes and media is just like the only way we can combat that is like removing the people who are perpetrating these stereotypes and allowing people who are actually, you know, identifying with these roles and, you know, portrayals to have, you know, the place of power and authority to, you know, represent themselves. Thanks, Jade. And Talia, what are your thoughts? I think that our communities are sensitive to how they're portrayed in the media, but sometimes not sensitive to how other groups are portrayed. So we need to highlight things that we have in common as minority groups and raise awareness of the stereotyping that occurs within all types of communities so that minority groups aren't perpetrating stereotypes of other minority groups, kind of building solidarity. And now over to you, Alana. Um, for me, it has been, I would attend these weekly lectures and tutorials and I just sit down and come, come home, sit down with my parents and my siblings, friends, whatever, and just talk about it. I, I can't think if you ask any of them, I can't stop talking about it because it does open up this whole new worldview. Finally, Sophie. 
I've spoken a lot about this course to my grandma, um, 81-year-old woman from Leeton, New South Wales, so not exactly the most um, diverse background. She calls me about all sorts of things that we've discussed. And I think to me, it just really, really shows that it's never too late to try and decolonize your understandings of the world. Um, I think it's, it's really important to, to as, ever, as all my peers have said, to really try and help others um, to become more educated on the topic. And anyone at any time can try to deconstruct and dismantle what they have previously held as the truth. You just heard from Sophie there who finished our roundtable discussion by uh, sharing her anecdote um, with her grandma talking about the conversations that they would have about what Sophie had learned in her gender studies class. And I think that's a really important note to finish on that we can create or start to create change by speaking to our family and friends about certain issues Um, and ensure that they then pass on that information to others in their community. So again, to summarise, that was a roundtable discussion that I had had recently with Dr Jihen Kebsi and her Macquarie University students, Hannah, Talia, Jade, Prashana, Alana and Sophie, about fighting against the Western media's stereotypical portrayal of marginalised communities. And if you are interested in attending the decolonising identity conference or would like to know more uh, please see the link to the event in our show notes later this morning all right we're gonna go to a track now um by becca hatch who is an australian uh musician uh who takes um music influence from her samoan heritage uh with powerful gospel choir vocals and tranquil island sounds while her Indigenous roots are uh, evident through storytelling and poignant self-reflection. And this is a new track from her called Be With You. And just before I play this track, I think, you know, at a time when Melbourne's in lockdown and a lot of New South Wales is in lockdown, you know, it's really important to support your local artists and musicians. Uh, They're all really struggling at the moment. And, you know, it's really nice to um, play them on places like 3CR Community Radio. So, yeah, we're going to play some more local acts um, now from onwards on the show. So hope you enjoy this one. Never met nobody like you in a long time. Yeah. Don't know what it is, all I know is that it feel right. Yeah. I'll be right here when you call on standby. When I see you know it's on sight, on sight Moonlight, sunrise with you Man, time fly, fly shotgun, girl, I drive Hold it down, be around Feel like our life was a party Remember it wasn't like that when we started We would do day nights, love was the budget Now we 100% never cut it, yeah Could you be the one to hold me Keep me grounded Don't mean to doubt 
Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, You just heard a track by Becca Hatch uh, called Be With You. Uh, I'm going to play you a conversation that uh, Professor Jackie True had on Bloomberg. I was hoping to speak to Professor True, um, but as I said at the start of the show, she is very understandably uh, very busy at the moment. Um, 
But just a little introduction, uh, Professor True is a Professor of International Relations and Director of Monash University's Centre for Gender, Peace and Security. Uh, and her current research is focused on the women peace and security agenda, which is understanding the politi- political economy of violence against women, sexual and gender-based violence in conflict in Asia Pacific, and the gender dimensions of violent extremism and conflict. And uh, in this conversation, Jackie mostly talks about the current climate in Afghanistan uh, with the recent takeover of the Taliban and especially its impact on women and children Um, and also discusses a little bit about the Australian government's responsibility in protecting those most at risk of Taliban retaliation and um, a petition that was actually written up by the Monash Gender Peace and Security Centre, which urges the federal government to provide security for Afghans. And I think this comes at a time when, you know, Kabul has fallen and there's a lot of questions surrounding exactly what Islamic rule is going to look like, exactly what this is going to mean for Afghanistan women. But it's really nice to hear Professor True's voice centred around actually all we need to be concentrating on is helping those that are most vulnerable, getting those um, to safety. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this interview. It's uh, quite interesting and very enlightening. How much has really changed and what are your expectations on, on whether there will be a difference in the way that the Taliban governs Afghanistan? We've talked at length about the people that are most at risk here. Uh, Good morning, Heidi, and thank you for the question. I think it's the burning question that we're all asking. Um, But I would say to you, we have to evaluate the Taliban based on their track record, just as we do with any country, any organisation or individual. And what we know that is that in the talks in Doha, uh, they rejected the current Afghan constitution, which protects human rights, uh, including women's rights, that they had no participation of women on their team. And despite several initiatives, ongoing initiatives to ask them uh, to represent uh, the women in their group, to to bring along their their wives uh, and uh, daughters, uh, they did not do so. So I think we, we, we know how they will operate and I think we need to prepare for the worst. I'm a feminist scholar of international relations, but I like to think of myself as a utopian realist. I think we need to prepare uh, a two-track strategy and I think we need to uh, respond to those women, especially women's rights activists who have been working uh, with Western governments, and we need to provide them safe passage out of Afghanistan if that is what they would wish. And we need to have a long-term strategy, and that should involve all of us. We need to continue engaging with the Taliban and emphasising to them the importance of human rights and the importance of responding to the humanitarian situation uh, in in a peaceful way. Uh, and I think we all need to be continuing to engage with our own governments mm. about how important these issues are to us. So talk to me about what this engagement looks like, right? Because from the outset, we know that Beijing is already engaging. They clearly have vested interests in the region. We know that Russia is likely to, to have that engagement as well. Is it useful that some of these countries uh, are going to be, uh, you know, communicating and, and, and dealing with the Taliban? Does that 
give them extra credibility or is there a way that you can sort of helpfully channel that into protecting some of these groups that we know are already, according to a lot of disturbing reports, having their rights uh, being and freedoms restricted? I'm... Look, I mean, I, I, am, I think we need to continue to engage as global civil society within and across countries, including Russia and China, uh, and emphasising the importance of the great strides that women in Afghanistan have made over the past 20 years uh, in terms of their education, in terms of their health, in terms of their significant contribution to the economy and the prosperity of Afghanistan. China and Russia are not, uh, you know, the best countries with which to engage on these issues because they have continually said that issues related to women's rights are of concern and should be under the governance of, uh, of states and not the international community. Uh, and they themselves have not, uh, you know, not supported or uh, in, in, in any way uh, mm. the promotion of women's rights internationally. So so tell us a little bit about what could change in the day-to-day -day lives of women. Take us back to the 1990s under the Taliban. Well, I think that it, I think it's important not to actually look back. I think we need to look forward. Uh, certainly in the 1990s, uh, you know, girls could not go to school over the age of 12. They did not have the right to freedom of musical expression. They couldn't play a musical instrument. They couldn't be employed. They couldn't go anywhere outside of their home without a male guardian, okay? So they were essentially an appendage, uh, a, a property of male relatives. So it's not to say that Afghanistan is the only country with that, uh, with that situation. Um, but I think we need to look forward and we need to understand that the past 20 years, many girls have been educated in some universities in Afghanistan. The majority of students are female. Um, we have been conducting a series of debates with Afghan youth uh, across the last two years on the peace process, and we have had brilliant young women debaters alongside their young male colleagues. Uh, so there is, uh, you know, there's a huge cadre, a huge capacity among young women in particular, uh, which would be such a loss to the country if they uh, have to stay home. So, so I think we need to focus on that right now. What leverage does the world have in order to try to guarantee these rights that have been achieved for women in the past two decades? Okay. So the only leverage is the power of public opinion, the power of uh, religion, and the power of global civil society. Uh, so I think that everyone, if you were not interested in Afghanistan until now, this is the time to be calling your MP, to be writing letters, to be contacting you know, your community and religious organizations. Uh, and I think it's a really important time for Muslims all around the world also to be reaching out. Uh, I think, you know, religious, uh, you know, faith-based approaches may be very effective at this time in terms of promoting uh, women's rights in particular, but, but really um, the situation and the, and the humanitarian protection uh, of all people in Afghanistan. Jackie, what are you hearing on the ground? Because this has obviously moved a lot faster than I think most people thought that it would, uh, just even in the last, you know, two or three days. What are you hearing from reports on the ground that's happening that would concern you about the direction that the Taliban is taking when it comes to the infringement of women and girls' rights? Yeah. 
Um, I'm really concerned in a, a couple of provincial capitals that the Taliban have asked for lists of names of unmarried girls uh, and have been uh, sending those girls uh, to marry their fighters. Uh, that's been happening in Kandahar uh, and Herat. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm very concerned that uh, that there are um, armed guards outside the homes of women leaders. Uh, and um, I'm very concerned that young women across the country are burning their university degrees and qualifications. Um, so I think I think we we have some extremely serious concerns right now. And I think many women in Afghanistan feel quite frankly betrayed uh, by Western countries and by all of our governments. Um, we had a webinar on Thursday night with the Minister of Women's Affairs, uh, with uh, Amnesty International South Asia Women's Rights Campaigner based in Kabul, uh, as well as two men from the Afghan government. Uh, and their message was clear. This is a horrendous end to a proxy war. This is not civil war in Afghanistan by any means. The US president has entirely misinterpreted the political dynamics on the ground and has in fact fueled uh, you know, the uh, takeover by the Taliban, uh, which will have consequences. That was uh, Professor Jackie True speaking about Afghanistan, specifically the impact that uh, the Taliban takeover will have on women and girls. And I think, you know, she really hit the nail on the head there in terms of um, what exactly you can try to do from here in Australia, because I know a lot of people um, kind of feel quite helpless um, with, I guess, trying to help. So, yeah, just reiterating you know, writing to your MPs, calling your MPs. Um, she's actually written a great uh, letter template um, called Letter of Support for Afghanistan, which you can find on the Monash University website under the Gender, Peace and Security. We'll link to it in the notes, but it gives a really good outline um, in terms of uh, ministers, addressing ministers, specifically the federal government, in terms of um, pushing them to uh, protect and um, essentially go and rescue people that they, quite frankly, have left behind in all of this. Um, all right, we're going to go to a quick announcement and we'll be right back. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Koko for their support of the program. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space Living Koko ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're on 3CR Community Radio Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, we're going to go to a track by uh, Australia's own Miss Thandy um, and featuring Johns, and this is her new track called Demons. <laughs> 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 
Time to speak up, speak out, and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech, or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter.
You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. You just heard a track by Miss Vandy titled Demons. Coming up now, um, we have an interview uh, with Cam Smith of Yena Passaran. Uh, I just uh, chatted to him last night and we'll be going to that now. Andy and Cam have been broadcasting on 3CR about the comings and goings of the far right since 2009 and in 2020 launched Yena Passaran, which is a weekly show dedicated to putting fascism and the far right under the microscope. Thanks so much, Cam, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So there's unfortunately a wealth of different things that we can talk about when it comes to the far right in Australia. But today I'd like to chat about the newest revelations about the National Socialist Network. In Fairfax, about a week ago now, there was a coordinated investigation with assistance from anti-fascist groups, including the White Rose Society. It's an ongoing investigation, so there's been more revelations in the last few days. But can you give us a brief explanation of what was revealed in this expose? Well, Evie, for those of us who've uh, been paying attention to this space for a while, there wasn't anything <laughs> really new. Uh, no, there was. it was pretty explosive stuff. Uh, basically, you've got this group, the National Socialist Network, or NSN, who, I mean, everybody knows that this is a violent group, right? But they you, say... You think so. <laughs> they, they say, you know, we're not violent. That's their public persona, is we're not violent. At the core of it, their ideology is inherently violent. It's a, Fascism is a conspiracy to murder. But their public thing is, you know, we're not violent. And what The Age and uh, Nine did, Nine Fairfax, have done is they've sent someone into the group with a hidden camera, with microphones, and they've recorded them saying, actually, what we <laughs> would really like to do is be quite violent. We'd like to do violence on you know a minor scale in terms of attacking minorities, and we want to do violence on a mass scale and that's our eventual agenda which no, you know no one had them on tape saying that before what we had on tape was them saying basically that but not going all the way yeah yeah and, and so this is like a real pivotal moment in unmasking a lot of those people as well yeah so the other thing is you know you can have the an academic study that uh, unpacks you know the messaging that they're putting out there, but it's sort of different when your nana's watching you say it on <laughs> 60 Minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. It, it can have quite a uh, a chilling effect on their ability to, to recruit. I mean, I was not terribly hopeful about <laughs> this story when I heard that it was going to be on the television, largely because Channel 9 is sort of responsible for some of the recent rise of the NSN. They uh, had a piece on a current affair uh, earlier in the year that wasn't very well done uh, and then led to an alleged assault in the Channel 9 uh, building, which allowed them to create a lot of propaganda and sort of sent their numbers online through the roof and seemingly also helped them get some real-life recruits. So I wasn't super stoked about this but uh yeah watching it i this is going to have a, a massive impact on their ability to recruit because one of their promises to their new recruits is you're not going to be doxxed you know we've got it covered uh you, no one's ever going to see your face you'll always be wearing a mask and this sent the message actually that's not exactly how it's going to go <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that is like the vital part of the National Socialist Network, which is to keep the privacy of their recruits. And in having this person who's gone undercover, we've now um, come to understand 
what kind of membership base they have. And I think the most shocking thing of all is that there are quite a few people who have just like, you know, gone about in their local communities and have perhaps been slowly alienated over time, but perhaps people didn't realise uh, that they had been radicalised quite that far. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of a mix. There were people, there was like a, a quite well-paid uh, security manager at Crown uh, who was a member and said some pretty uh, abhorrent things about how he treated his non-white staff. But it's like, is that guy uh, necessarily economically alienated? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, exactly. I don't know if that's like, if that narrative always held up with uh, what we found out about who the members were. Yeah, so it, it does sort of dispel a couple of the myths of who is likely to be radicalised. And this article in particular made reference to Alice McNamara, who's better known locally to many people as Ali Spazzy from the mid-2000s pop-up brand The Spazzies. And not only has she been posting anti-lockdown rhetoric, but the White Rose Society went into further detail that she she'd had a long history of this sort of fascist or fascist-aligned sort of language online. Yeah, a uh, bit of a blow for us uh, embarrassed ageing pop punks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we lost one of our own the other day. Uh, it, was, it was a really weird story because I, I was sort of looking at some of the response to it and there were a lot of people saying, you know, this doesn't, like, gel with the person that I knew 10 years ago. Yeah. But I also saw, saw someone saying, you know, like obviously the band name of the Spazzies is a bit on the Probo side, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was probably Probo at the time too, but yeah, it's punk, right? Yeah. But I saw someone saying, you know, someone from the Spazzies put out a statement a few years ago saying, oh, you know, actually I'm not totally comfortable with the name. I want to sort of move on from that. Uh, it, it was problematic. And that was Ali <laughs> who said that. Oh, oh dear. So yeah, that was a little <laughs> bit weird. But yeah, it's it's um I think a lot of people were shocked that someone was sort of hiding in plain sight amongst them. Yeah, see that's the thing. This the reason why this shocked me so much is just feels like this is one of the first times in my recent memory at least and perhaps in, you know, a lot of people's recent memory of anyone who doesn't follow a lot of, you know, fire right movements that a local community has had to reckon with the idea of a neo-Nazi or someone who's sympathetic to neo-Nazis hiding in plain sight amongst them. So do you think this is like given people kind of that jolt in realising that these kind of things can appear in your community and it's more than just, you know, some guy turning up, you know, with a swastika patch on his arm? Yeah, I think it it is something where you need to be vigilant. I, I, I was actually sort of reminded just down the road from 3CR, of course, is the Birmingham Hotel, uh, which was a, a Nazi pub in the heart of Collingwood and Fitzroy, uh, which also sort of had a lot of uh, punk scene drama over whether it was appropriate to perform at this very Nazi-friendly venue. Not anymore, I should say. Uh, I guess these things go in cycles, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the I think like one of the problems here as well is that we're in the current environment that you know we we you spoke earlier about you know economic anxiety and that sort of thing, but we're in an environment at the moment which is given to allowing a lot of people to fall into sort of that conspiracy mindset, and so we're starting to see more of that confluence between 
the anti-lockdown protesters and just outright sort of fascist movements trying to use that discontent to grow their ranks. And I know you've spoken about it a bit and so have other anti-fascist activists as well as people who follow these kind of movements. Yeah, so, I mean, we saw the NSN were out there on the weekend and they were handing out signs and there's signs, uh, it's some weird far-right meme, but basically their signs said who, uh, I think in French or something, but the answer to their question of who is the Jews and so that's what they want these normie anti-lockdown people to be asking is uh, like who is responsible for all this and then they can push them towards, oh, it's the Jews. And we saw that also in some of the stuff that uh, the White Rose Society found out about Ali Spazzi is that uh, she was pushing a lot of far-right propaganda into these anti-lockdown spaces that are really ripe for recruiting to these mm-hmm. movements because they are full of people who are looking for an answer. They are already sort of primed for the answer involving some sort of shadowy conspiracy. And then it's not that hard to push them into looking in a particular direction for who's behind the shadowy conspiracy. And you also have, in terms of like the crossover with maybe the wellness space, you have an environment where people are not that confrontational. So Mm. there's a a reluctance to push back. When I look in like these Telegram chats that are involved with the anti-lockdown movement and someone's dropping in Holocaust denial material or just general anti-Semitism in relation to COVID, no one's really saying, hey, on, that's not on, because there's this sort of, you know, kumbaya, we've all got to get along thing. Mm, mm. So you have these people that are not really equipped to respond to this sort of entryism. Yeah. One thing that's just reminded me of as well is, like, even just as, like, a regular person who has only just now started to encounter more sort of extreme views in my sort of like network of friends I find it really difficult to sort of even me who understands how this starts it's just difficult to understand how to pull someone back from that you know I've had conversations with people and try to like understand what their sort of concerns were and their anxieties and I get like a lot of it comes from you know insecure work or worrying about the future and that sort of thing but when they're introduced to much more extreme points of view, it's it, like it's hard to know how to pull someone back from that. And that, I think that's why it's so shocking when you see that kind of thing being introduced into these wellness spaces. I, I, like I think there's just that sort of revulsion where it's just like I can't, I can't be the one who puts sticks my neck out. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. I, I, unfortunately, because I've spent the you know the past fifteen years cultivating the perfect friendship group, I haven't had to <laughs> deal with this myself. But I, I, I do have friends who have seen friends going down the rabbit hole, and it's hard to know what to do because you can you can maybe look at their Facebook uh, feed and see them going down the rabbit hole, and you can see other people you know trying to address it and just getting thrown off and. It's easy to say, all right, well, unfriend. And maybe that's partly the answer. Someone needs to see the, you know, the social consequence of going down this path. But uh, I think also just as hard as it is to say with yeah. <laughs> stuff, uh, empathy is the answer sometimes. 
I don't know. Yeah. Look, it, look, look and as someone who has left Facebook many years ago, it's also like I don't realise the kind of rabbit holes that people get into and I think like a lot of like, you know, the influence that I could have on a person to try to talk to them is very much in person, which is also something we can't do right now. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is you can be as empathetic as you like, but I think we also need to understand that there's a huge apparatus in place which is designed to make as much money as possible out of just cooking everyone's brain. (laughs) Uh, And so maybe that's not great. And as well as, you know, being understanding and listening and uh, helping people through the stuff, we could look at maybe doing something about that. Yeah. Look, look, I think like the best uh, thing I could do or that anyone could do is to have that sort of no tolerance approach in the first place. And I think that's, you know, something that I, I think like should be something that should be more broadly, you know, publicized in response to these kind of things. It's not just about anti-lockdown protests, but specific, you know, the kind of views that you're thinking about accepting are not going to be tolerated by polite society or even from a structural point of view. Um, and, and it's it's important to identify that for what it is as anti-Semitism or, you know, neo-Nazi adjacent beliefs. Exactly. Thank you so much, Cam. I really appreciate you coming to talk to us uh, today. Tune in to Andy and Cam's show, Yena Passaran, which you can find on 3CR's website. Thank you so much, Cam. Thanks for having me. And as you just heard, that was the wonderful Cam Smith from Yena Passaran. Uh, such a wonderful um, uh, person to talk to about such serious issues and he really breaks it down in a way that you can understand. Um, just also, uh, if that interview um, were, you know, has it brought up quite a few disturbing images and we made reference to a lot of um, language and images that might be offensive. Um, so just advising listener discretion if you choose to listen back to it or at a, at a future time. All right. Well, up next, we've got an interview with uh, Sally Thompson, who spoke with Annie McLaughlin on Solidarity Breakfast about the community campaign that successfully forced the Maribyrnong Council in Melbourne's West to overturn their no vote to repurpose an unused international student resident into social housing during COVID. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Sally Thompson on the line who is from Maribyrnong. This brings the whole issue of homelessness and diversity to a local level in Maribyrnong. Sally, you went off to the council to uh, deliver a message regarding a project that gives social housing to more people in Seddon. Can you explain what happened? Sure. Uh, hi, hi, Annie. Seddon, of course, is a little suburb right next to Footscray in the inner west in Maribyrnong. When you come into Footscray, there's kind of a, a couple of main roads through, and on one of those, Barclay Street, there was a block of apartments that was used mainly for international students. Well, of course, because of COVID, we don't have the international students that we once had. So the housing provider went to council and said, look, can we change the nature of our permit here so that we can use these 66 apartments for affordable and social housing? And I just assumed that in the middle of this housing and homelessness crisis, 
particularly in a community like the Inner West, which is a working class community that has a very proud history of providing affordable housing for waves of working class and poor people from around the world, really, that this would be a bit of a no-brainer. And I was pretty stunned when I was sitting on Facebook one night to see the socialist councillor on Maribyrnong, uh, Jorge Jorquera, posting that council had voted against this change to the planning uh, um, uh, regime and that only himself and one of the Green councillors, Bernadette Thomas, had had voted in favour of this building being used for social housing. So uh, there's a number of us who who were quite stunned, actually, by by this development. And what ensued has been this sort of community debate, which has been pretty shocking in its kind of othering of people living in social housing. And I'm someone who grew up in public housing myself, and I was pretty sickened, actually, by some of the um, attitudes of the councillors who had thrown their lot in with really a very tiny minority of neighbours who had, I think, you know, really un, uh, unfair uh, attitudes towards the people that might might move into those social housing apartments. So, so, so what um, you're talking mm. about is this is, uh, I mean, it's an outrage, actually, because it's incredibly yeah. uh, working class area around there. The whole, it's built on the blood of working class people. Absolutely. And, it, and it's all about gentrification and what they're saying sure that uh, these people aren't good enough to be living with them. Yeah. Oh, look, I think one of the things that really horrified me about this was the just the hypocrisy. I mean, the, the neighbours complaining live in what they call workers' cottages, those little inner, uh, inner west yeah. workers' cottages. The clues in the name, for God's sake, you know, and also <laughs> converted warehouses. And what was really revolting about it was that a lot of the councillors were saying things like, oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just not an appropriate spot for it. Now, this is an area right next to Footscray Station, right next to uh, all of the services of Footscray, you know, health and welfare and whatever else. It's on a main road, for heaven's sake. It's not in some little pocket of Sleepy Hollow, you know. If poor people can't live there, then really they can't live anywhere, you know. So there was this kind of faux debate about oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just that we want them to have the best and that's not the best for them, which was pretty, you know, pretty transparent, I have to say. Mm. And uh, it obviously uh, de- uh, flies in the face of the, a need for a diverse community. Uh, there's 3% of housing stock in Sydney is social housing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that this is what was so stunning about it as well, is that the Inner West actually has a lot of social and public housing, but it tends to be concentrated in around the kind of Braybrook, West Footscray type area. Yep. Um, Seddon just happens to be a little pocket that's that's gentrifying fast and um, it only has about 3%. So, then, so one of the arguments that was put forward is, oh, it's not that we're against social housing, it's just that we don't want too much of it congregated together, you know, and and ironically, this was the one part of that inner west area that had very little social housing at all. And the apartment block that we were talking about had 66 one-bedroom apartments. So, you know, we're not talking a high-rise. We're not talking, you know, an entire suburb. It, you know, it, it was really a bit of a nonsense, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you actually fronted up to the council and you were able to turn the ship around. Is that right? Yeah, uh, look, myself and many others, I have to say. So we, we managed to get a... It went through council. Um, the housing provider um, who is a not-for-profit social housing provider, Unison, they 
appealed to VCAT and then the council reconsidered, had another meeting reconsidering it on the basis of that appeal. And basically what myself and, and, and a number of others did was convince them to drop their, their opposition. Unison came to the party sort of to try and cut through by offering to provide security guards three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, wow. Saturday, which that alone... Uh, um, <laughs> and, and ironically, our mayor is in the media running around crowing about what a breakthrough this is for social housing and encouraging other councils to do the same. And look, the battle's not over as far as I'm concerned because this is a really worrying precedent that a handful of NIMBYs can shake down a not-for-profit, you know, basically, and, and pressure them to provide private security to meet the irrational fears of a handful of neighbours, you know? Wow. It's a really worrying precedent, and I totally get why Unison did it, because they just wanted to cut through and they wanted to make a... You know, they just wanted to, to, to move on and to meet the neighbours part way. But, you know, my attitude to that is some of these neighbours have had capital gains increases of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent. If they're frightened of their neighbours, maybe they can pay for private security instead of expecting some poor little not-for-profit, you know, to take money that should be spent to house people to pay for private security guards. It's a really troubling precedent. Yeah, it's really shameful. The, it's uh, shameful. Yeah, it is shameful. So uh, before I let you go, because this is a fantastic thing that you've done, uh, there, were, there was basically a step-by-step -step campaign. It was the fact that you had a socialist councillor, wonderful yes, step, that uh, alerted people. Then yes. there was the uh, petition where yes. you physically got people to uh, look at the issue and you, you know, educated people to understand what was going on and they put their, signed their name to this petition and yes. then there was you going to council and uh, talking directly into their eyes to shame yes. them effectively. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm a bit embarrassed sort of being the figurehead of this because a lot of people, um, you know, uh, were really passionate about this. And, and to get a petition through council, it has to have physical signatures on a physical bit of paper, which in uh, restrictions and the middle of winter is quite challenging. And, you know, if, if they had have taken an online petition, it would have been many, many thousands of people because I had just people on, you know, contacting me randomly on social media going, how do I sign that petition? You know, can I meet? you somewhere so I can physically sign it. You know, pe people, I mean, the, the good news story in this is that, the, the res you know, the, the majority of people who we spoke to uh, were horrified by this. It's not it's not the inner west that they know and love, you know. It, this decision is not aligned. The, the councillors who voted against this are way out of line with the local community, you know. I mean, people move to the inner west because it's diverse, because it's affordable, because it has this phenomenal history. Yeah. Um, that we're all so proud of. I mean, that's... And, and a number of people um, contacted council and made the point because one of the things councillors said was that this social housing would ruin the amenity of the surrounding neighbours. And quite a few people, including myself, contacted council and said, well, what about my amenity? What about my right to live in this diverse, wonderful, working-class community that I love? You know, what about my right to have it not changed into this bland, you know, middle-class enclave... Mm. Um, what about my amenity? This is the community I love. This is not okay. So it's been a um, it's been quite heartening the response actually. Thanks for talking to us, Sally. And no worries. More strength to your arm. Oh, thanks, Annie.
Uh, so we just heard from Sally Thompson, um, who was on Solidarity Breakfast talking about the community campaign that successfully forced the Maribyrnong Council in Melbourne's West to overturn their no vote to repurpose an unused international student resident into social housing during COVID. And we're now at the end of our show for today. So just to wrap up our show, uh, firstly, this morning we heard from a roundtable discussion that I had with Dr. Jihen Kebsi and some of her undergraduate students. They talked about this upcoming conference that they organised together based on Dr. Kebsi's Gender Studies Unit called Decolonising Identity. Uh, We then heard a conversation that Professor Jackie True had with Bloomberg uh, specifically about um, Afghanistan and what Australia, uh, the Australian government, should do in terms of helping and protecting Afghan citizens. And after that, we heard an interview that Evie had with Cam from Yenar Passaran about the far right and what they've been doing since 2009. And as you know, we just heard Sally Thompson speaking with Annie from Solidarity Breakfast. Yeah, um, we hope everyone has a great week and stay safe and um, get tested if you feel unwell and get vaccinated. Um, Melbourne, stick in there. We're doing really well. <laughs> it's, it's me being optimistic, but yeah, it'll be f- yeah. We it'll can be do fine. This. It'll be this. great. Yeah, we've got this. And look up the capybaras. And look up the capybaras. <laughs> like out of everything, I just said, look up the capybaras. <laughs> Takes the cream there um all right upcoming up next is accent of women um and keep it locked to 3cr 3cr breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find nibs in the basement of trades hall in victoria street carlton and while you're there check out radical coffee a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au